Welcome. Highfalutin Ski Bump Podcast is episode number 119. And it is your pals, Mario and Brian. Mario, what is up? Uh, what is up? There's been a lot of developments lately. Um, I kind of am battling some little sickness going on and uh, just trying to get through this. Yeah, unfortunately, we had to yeah, push this out a couple of days because, yeah, some uh, some real life stuff was going down. So. Yeah, I don't mind sharing. I got Bell's palsy, which uh, if anybody doesn't know what that is, uh, it's just a little, you know, nature saying, hey, buddy, I'm going to freeze your face up for a little while and uh, try to do the shit you normally do. And it's uh, a little tough, but hopefully they're saying it should be, you know, should kind of fix itself out and I'll be back to normal in no time, but we'll just have to see. So I got a little bit of a messed up mouth and uh, basically it's almost like having a I guess this is what it would be similar to if you had a stroke, like the right side of your face is like paralyzed. Some people it's the left side, some people it's the right, but. So it's kind of like a stroke light. Like. Yeah. Stroke light. So, uh, you know, unfortunately my dad had a major stroke and that's kind of what, uh, led him to his, his eventual, you know, down, down, downward spiral. But, um, that scared the shit out of me. So kind of made me think about things and, uh, in light of uh, everything but hey gotta live uh for today because you never know when it's gonna go but uh scared the shit out of me and hopefully everything's gonna be okay but uh now i know how uh he he must have felt in uh at least with the eating and the talking and shaving shaving was really weird today oh really in what way well like you don't realize how you purse your lips when you're shaving all the time so i go to purse my lips and everything is like to the one side so <laughs> It's just really weird. So, like, you don't realize that you're doing that the whole time you're shaving. I'm like, wow, I got to leave my my face still so it's even. You know, it is weird. Jeez. Well, at least you're. Uh, you seem to be on the path to recovery, so that's a positive thing. Yes, I am. Uh, getting a little bit of feeling, a little bit of movement back in my face. So, uh, gonna do some PT on Friday. Gonna try to do whatever I need to, to get this going back in the right way. They basically say I need to stop stressing and rest a little bit. So we'll see if that happens. Well, at least it happened at the end of ski season, right? Hey, I, I said, right when I got this, I was like, you know what? I don't give a shit. I could still ski. <laughs> right. You don't you need your face for skiing. I don't. Yeah. I don't need to use the right side of my face for skiing. I mean, I could breathe, so I'm good. So it could be worse is really what it comes down to. Exactly. Exactly. Would not be the end of my ski career. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, we're that's how we're going to start off the podcast today. So thank you all so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. Check us out, skibumpodcast.com. Check us out on all the socials, twitter.com slash skibumpodcast, facebook.com slash skibumpodcast, instagram.com slash skibumpodcast. We are on Pinterest as the Highfalutins, and we're also on SoundCloud as Highfalutin-SkiBum. And if you could, go to your favorite podcasting apps and subscribe and rate us. That would really help us out. So thank you so much. And with that... It's time for Our Pray Today. Oh, yeah, we got the music back. We got the music back, yeah. The live music, the live studio band. Yeah, not sure if I'm sure everyone has noticed that it's it sounded different lately, and uh, it's because we've been putting in the the music post production. But now we're trying to we got 
Mario's got the mixer set up now down in his place. I got the mixer here. So we're able to uh, get it back to the uh, the uh, real-time music. Yeah, this is the first time with the mixer, the new mixer. So if anybody doesn't like what they're hearing, uh, if the sound sucks, let us know, because uh, I really can't tell how it's going to end up. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's off season now, so we're uh, we're gonna do some experimenting with some things. So now is the time to do it. Yeah, at least that's the way we feel, and uh, you know, we're gonna do it that way. All right. So for operate today, I have I actually posted this on Instagram earlier today, but I didn't open it because I only have one of them. I ordered it when I ordered that big beer shipment with the sip of sunshine. Uh, I got the pseudo sue from Toplink Goliath um, out of. Decorah, Iowa. And uh, this was, oddly enough, I ordered it because it looked like it was pretty high rated. Um, got good feedback on uh, Beer Advocate. So I ordered it. And then, um, Brian, you sent over an article uh, like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and it had the best uh, pale ales rated on there. And this was number four out of all the pale ales in the in the country. So I was like, wow, and now I got to really, I got to save this for the podcast. So I've been... Um, looking at this for about two weeks now, like waiting to open it. So I finally cracked it. It's very good. Um, it's uh, maybe it's citra hops and it does have like some aromas and flavors of like a little bit of like citrusy grapefruit mangoey, but not really, really powerful. It's just very subtle. Uh, it reminds me almost of like a finish of a sip of sunshine, but um, it's very oh, really and easy drinking. I got to say you crush these. Very nice. Yeah, it's a 6.2 ABV, and it got a 4.52 out of 5 on Beer Advocate, which they classify as world-class. World-class, huh? Yeah, so it's up there at the top. So it's an APA American Pale Ale, so very good. If you can get your hands on this, uh, which I don't I don't think that I've seen this anywhere, and I found this through that one store that, that, sips, that ships Sip of Sunshine. So... Uh, I would imagine if you find it, grab some. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And you can't miss it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the best part of it, if you look on Instagram, you'll see the picture of the can. It's a purple T-Rex, purple and green T-Rex. It's pretty cool. Very cool. So now this is kind of a, I'm having a, uh, a beer that I will get into in a minute, but this is my first real drink in a month now since I did April no boozy leads to May margs and full koozies. <laughs> this is so, like, like walking through with you falling off the wagon. This is great. Well, I'm not falling off the wagon. This was a, this was a planned experiment and uh, I guess I can get, I, if you know what, I'll get into it now. Cause I know one of our, our upcoming stories kind of goes into this topic a little bit too, but I took the month off and at first I was really kind of annoyed just because I realized how much of my, you know, social life kind of revolves around, oh, we'll get a drink here. We'll go to dinner and have, you know, something of a steak. I'll have a glass of wine with that. And there's a certain, you know, a certain grown up, you know, permission or, you know, ability to do something. And when you take that ability away, it just, it just feels like you're almost like a kid again or something. At first it was really annoying and it was bugging me. And then by the end, I just kind of got used to it. And I was even saying at first, like, I didn't really feel any different because, you know, you hear people say, oh, well, I stopped drinking and I felt amazing, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't at first, but like the last couple of days, since it's been on, like when it got to like a month, I actually did start to feel like 
I don't know, like lighter um, or or something about like, you know, like the spring in your step or something. Like it just felt a little bit different. But also I, I lost like nine pounds in the process. Oh, really? I weighed myself this morning at the gym and I was like uh, 189.5 when I started the month. Now, that also included having like some sort of stomach virus for two days. So that was a nice like uh, like a like a head start. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, I was 180 even today. So, wow. Yeah, I've been watching what I've been. One thing I think what it is is like you know you you stop drinking and you it also kind of like becomes like it compounds your positive decision making. You know, sometimes you have a drink and you're like, oh, you know, I'll get like an extra plate of nachos or I'll eat some chips or I'll eat some other crap, and you kind of you keep making the bad decisions. So with this, you know, not drinking, I feel like I was making better decisions along the way throughout this whole time. Did you feel like weird? Did you feel good? Like, like more energy? Like you said the last part of it, but during it, did you feel, you know, while you were going through it, like were you, we were upset, mad. Like what else did you go through? Well, it was a couple of days where you're just annoyed. Like where, you know, shit was going on at work or life. And you're like, I just want to freaking have a drink and pass out on the couch. But I, uh, yeah, I just, there was, there was that, but you know, I just, by the end, I just started feeling like just good in general. But again, I'm also eating better, working out more. So maybe that was it. I don't know. I, again, I can't really pinpoint what was, if it was one thing or if not drinking was the thing, but yeah, I just started feeling good overall. Now without drinking, did you like fill that time? Cause I know, like you said, it's like pretty social too. So like if you weren't going out as much or whatever, did you like work out more or like find other stuff to do? I passed out on the couch more, which was kind of weird. <laughs> like yeah. I, there was a couple nights I fell asleep at like nine o'clock on the couch. I was, I think I, I think my body almost was like just kind of allowing itself to realize how exhausted it was. Did you sleep better? Not really. Yeah, not really. Still kind of, you know, typical wake up patterns and. Yeah. So I can't conclusively say that it was, you know, it made me feel a ton better, but I'm glad that I did it. And it made me realize that how capable I am of just turning it off if I need to. That's good. So it was nice. It was, I'm glad I did it. Uh, I'll probably do it again at some point. Now you're ready for your speedo. Ready for my speedo. <laughs> so, yeah. So what I'm drinking. So this is a beer that I purchased back on St. Patrick's Day because we went to a local brewery which was Carton Brewery in Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey. And they had a beer there. Now, Carton's always doing collaborations with with other breweries. And one of the ones they did last year, which was out of this world, was with Other Half. And it was called All Orange Everything. And I saw this can in the refrigerator there as one of the beers they were selling. And it was called Rays. So I saw the Other Half logo, so I'm like, I got to pick it up. And they also collaborated with two other, um, I guess they're, well, one of them's a brewery. It's weird. So they the, there's, there's four poker chips on the can. It's got Carton, Other Half, Barrier Brewery, and Interborough Spirits and Ales. So I guess they all combined to make this beer. And it's an IPA. They're using Columbus, Citra, Idaho 7, and Cashmere hops. And it's uh, it's like a 7%er. And it's... Uh, it, it drinks a lot lighter than that. This is the first time they made it. They've only made it once. And that's kind of like one of the things that, you know, 
all these breweries are known for, at least, you know, other half and carton. They'll just do things once and then that's it. So it's really tasty. It's uh, like I said, it's, it's pretty light. It's flavorful. The citra hops definitely are, uh, are noticeable. It's good stuff. Again, if you can find it, I'd say give it a whirl, but uh, considering they only made it once, it's not likely you will find it. So rare limited beer here. That's a huge collab. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever seen any collaboration with like three, four breweries like that. I know, right? Wild. What does it taste like? Good? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's citrusy. Um, it's, you know, got a decent, a decent hop profile. Nothing really stands out too much on it. It's just kind of a clean drinking, you know, IPA. Very good. IPAs now are all like getting a little citrusy because I think that that makes it a little bit more palatable, like a little more uh, kind of friendly to the masses. I think everyone likes the citra hops. Yeah, yeah. It's just a, it's a you know nice, flavorful, not necessarily sweet, but fruitier like little hops, which is which is kind of nice for everything. Yeah, it's good stuff. Well, cool. Well, I think uh, you got the first one. You got the first story up here because uh, this is in your wheelhouse. Yes. So this was an interesting tale. And this was kind of what I was alluding to before. And the, uh, the article is called, It's Time to Rethink How Much Booze May Be Too Much. And researchers are changing how they study the risks of alcohol and it's making drinking look worse. <laughs> You know, people have always said like, oh, you know, everything in moderation. And then, you know, we've heard about the French paradox, which they said, you know, alcohol, a little bit of alcohol was good for you. Um, but this is starting to, uh, to this research is starting to kind of question that a little bit. And um, they said it's really just more than wine consumption that sets the French apart. Um, but the red wine idea was replaced by a narrative suggesting that drinking small amounts of any type of alcohol, no more than one drink a day for women, two for men, appeared to be linked with modest health and heart benefits. But now they're comparing the long-term observations and they're saying that um, they had better outcomes than the non-drinkers. They had lower rates of heart disease and heart attacks and lived longer. Moderate drinkers also had lower rates of diabetes. Um, but the problem with these results was they compared drinkers to non-drinkers instead of comparing only lighter drinkers to heavier drinkers. Mm. And people who don't drink are pretty fundamentally different from drinkers in ways that are hard to control for the study. So they're wondering if, if you know, that whole belief system is maybe incorrect. So binge drinking has its its place potentially. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure if that's what the results are telling us, but they said what part of what they were doing in the study is that they were trying to find out how much alcohol people can drink before they started being at a higher risk of dying. And they're saying that the upper safe limit was 100 grams of alcohol per week. I don't know how much 100 grams is. It's a weird number. Yeah. Why do they got to get all like gram in there? Yeah. But they were, they were saying that, you know, 
if men who have their alcohol consumption from about 14 drinks per week to seven might gain one to two years of life expectancy. They're saying one gram is 3.5 ounces. So three and a half shots. Okay. So three and a half ounces. So, all right. That's a decent. So a hundred grams is a lot then. Well, they're saying what a week, a week. That's three and a half drinks. Cause I guess they're saying grams of alcohol. So about seven standard glasses of wine or beer. They're saying would equal a hundred grams or a hundred grams. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They have that little chart in the, in the, in whatchamacallit. About seven standard glasses of wine or beer. That's not bad. Because that's 100% alcohol and nothing's 100%. So. Right. So this is, uh, this is interesting. And again, it kind of plays, int- it plays well into the, you know, my little monthly experiment that I just did. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to be the wet blanket guy who's like, you shouldn't drink anything. You know, it seems to be better for you because I don't know if I could actually be that guy. But, you know, it, um, you, know you start looking at the numbers here and you're like, oh, wow, if I actually drank half of what I usually did, I'd be way healthier. Yeah, I think everybody kind of like when you, you start talking to people in general and you say, how many glasses of whatever beer or wine or how many beers do you have or drinks do you have? I think everybody's always like, they give you a number and they're like, yeah, you, they kind of pause. And I think everybody kind of thinks like, I could always taper back a little. Cause you always have like those days where you're like, yeah, I'm just going to push it. Have one more, have another, you know, where you're like, I could have not had the one more and gone for a run or something or done something productive, but happens to everybody. Yeah. 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 And I think everyone's biology is different too. So some people may be, you know, genetically predisposed to, to not handle alcohol as well as some other people. So, you know, you really need to figure out what works better for, for you personally. Never drink and then go to the gym. I can't do it. I just don't. I don't know many who can do that. I know people that are like, yeah, I, I went out to happier and then I went and worked out at the gym. I'm like, how can you, how can you- what kind of workout do they have? I always do a lot of cardio, so I just, I don't like the way it feels. I just went and stretched for a bit, fell asleep, <laughs> got back up. Checked out the, you know, just pumped up the guns, checked out the chicks in there. You know, yeah. Walked around. The funny thing too is like, you know, there's always that question when you go for a physical with your doctor and they're like, well, how many drinks do you have a week? Right. Everybody, who, who tells the truth? You're like, yeah, I really don't want to tell them I, I'm having like a case of beer a week or you know, 12 pack, like it just sounds weird. So, you know, I'm sure they take the number that everybody gives and they like multiply it by two. That's possible too. Yeah. It's funny. Cause you know, and you estimate, you're like, well, you know, different times of year, if you get me around holiday season, it's a ton that I'm drinking, but you get me around, you know, midsummer, I'm not drinking that much unless I got something going on, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it really depends. It's situational for me, but it's not like I say, well, you know, I'm going to have my, I have seven beers to allocate throughout the week. Then again, maybe I should do that. That might be a, an easier way to regulate. Way to discipline yourself. Yeah. yeah. And to keep tabs. Yeah. So I got seven, you know, seven, uh, seven beers, use them wisely, seven drinks, use them wisely, you know? Yeah. You'd probably think a bit more about what you drank then. Oh, definitely. It's almost like an advent calendar, you know? 
get every day you get one piece of chocolate but you're not even wasting it on like a bud light you're just like fuck that i'm i'm gonna happy all the time <laughs> yeah well that's that's the thing too is you really you know you start to uh to yeah not just have oh i'm not gonna just drink for quantity it's like all right if i have only seven i better drink something good yeah with those seven that's right you don't mind paying a little bit more getting drinking something better yep quantity right mm-hmm. do you do four locos and and vodka or do you do like you know a nice shot of you know a nice dram of, of whiskey i don't know think of the whiskey i think so too speaking of whiskey yes if anybody doesn't know, just came out with a new uh, Irish whiskey, and it's the first to mature in Dublin in 43 years. So I guess, um, you know, not a lot of producers in, in Ireland have come up with new stuff. And uh, now Jameson decided, hey, let's come out with a high end. Uh, they're very popular. Unfortunately, they're popular like picklebacks and stuff, which, you know, hopefully nobody does picklebacks with this. <laughs> I'm sure somebody will. But you, you're going to see somebody just like they get out there with the good tequila and they do the lime and the salt and somebody wants to smack them. But um, that was me. I wanted to smack that girl. Yep. <laughs> we saw that out and I was just like, yeah, we should we should just do it. I, I don't think anybody. I think it's your duty when you see something like that. It's amateur hour stuff. Yeah, exactly. So um, they're saying that. Uh, so they came out with a Jameson Bow Street. And um, this is their, you know, premium uh, level, you know, 18 year old or more. And uh, it's uh, similar to the traditional 18 year uh, whiskey, which is uh, good for Jameson. They've been uh, very popular in the bars and everything. And they're saying they're going to sell for about 290 bucks. Wow. Uh, they launched not this past Wednesday, the Wednesday before. Uh, only in select markets. So for about two ninety, you can get this. Um, and they're saying um, they close. I guess it's named after the the Bow Street Distillery that, um, which uh, closed in nineteen seventy five. So they're saying the old distillery is the Visitor Center in Dublin. And now what they're doing is they're uh, doing runs of this uh, special whiskey and it's limited to 84 barrels. So they're saying it's going to get continually exceptionally limited as people start buying it. So, hey, drop 300 bucks. You get get some now. Futures. We got to do the futures, right? Whiskey futures. Yep. Pick up a case, put in your basement. Don't think about it. And then in uh, 10 years. Right. You go skiing in Japan, take some with you, pay for your trip. Not a bad move. Well, speaking of speaking of spending big money, uh, this this weekend coming up, we have uh, Kentucky. So we got the Kentucky Derby and Cinco de Mayo happening on the same day, which is always a, a crazy event. So it's Cinco de Derby, I guess they're calling it. Oh, it's going to be a magical time. Yes, and uh, you know, there's there's two distinct beverages that go along with each of those events you know with the kentucky derby you have uh bourbon and usually a mint julep and then with cinco de mayo it's usually tequila margaritas but now the good folks at patron and pappy van winkle have united for a fifteen hundred dollar cocktail it sounds delicious already yes fifteen hundred dollars the Brown Hotel in Louisville, Kentucky has conjured up the Agave Julep, 
which is a carefully curated drink consisting of two ounces of Patron en Lalique, Sere 2 Extra Anejo Tequila, and half an ounce of Old Rip Van Winkle 25-year-old bourbon as the base spirits. Add to this 15 muddled leaves of fresh chocolate mint, three drops of chocolate bitters, and three key limes sliced and caramelized with the demerara sugar plus a splash of water. Damn. All this is magically combined in an elegant gold-hued julep cup filled with crushed ice and garnished with a chocolate mint sprig. And that is what you get for $1,500 fucking dollars. One drink. You're hanging out with the high and ski bums. That's what we serve. That's what. That's all. We just buy rounds of that. That man. You want. You want to do that? You. We'll. We'll do some of those. We just get a big bucket of it. That's right. And you get a little dude serving it too. That's the best part. <laughs> a, a jockey. Little jockey guy. He's. He's like serving that thing. Your. Your special juleps, sir. <sighs> That's um. Like you know how I like it with Patron and little Pappy. Well, think about it. So. You know, when you go out and if you paid 15 bucks for a drink, you'd be like, wow, that's an expensive drink. Now think about the kind of person you have. So think about your, like, what your salary is, what you're comfortable with, and pretty much tack on two zeros. And that's the kind of person who could buy that drink. Yeah. Or if you change. So if you if you watch instead of drinking the case of Peel's Light every week or PBR, one, one, one week in a year, have a few of these. I think this is probably more than most people's rent or mortgage payments. $1,500. Damn, that's a lot of money. Yeah, that's pretty steep. That's like a new pair of skis, new pair of custom skis. <laughs> I mean, but one positive is that a portion of the proceeds for each cocktail we donated to the Kentucky Humane Society's Recreational Horse Relief Fund. They better do something with like charity for that because that's a crazy amount of money. It's bananas. Yeah. Man, it makes me makes me mad that I, I'm not in I'm not driving a Lamborghini right now. Yep. Damn it! I watched that um that fast fastest car on uh, Netflix. Oh yeah. Oh, it was fun. It was awesome. It's pretty good, right? Yeah, you get so pissed. You're like, God damn it! These people are driving these supercars. They don't even know. They don't even know what. I don't know. They don't know how car works. Did you see the guy with the freaking chrome Lamborghini? Yeah. Oh, what a douche. <laughs> What a douche. Super, super uber douche. Oh, crazy. And it's not hot. Thought she was hot girlfriend. Yeah. One girl that she was uh, driving the Ferrari. And she, she actually seemed like she knew a lot about cars, but she was like a racer. She was like train racing. Like yeah, she was a race car driver. She was a badass. Yeah, she's a badass. I'm like, so here's somebody that, yeah, she has wealth, but she can drive a goddamn car. It was great. Douche that one is like, yeah, I take pictures of cars and I borrow people's cars. I'm like, oh, dude. That dude lives, that guy had a great job though. He just takes pictures of, yeah, rich people's cars. And they, they fly him into like Dubai and stuff to do that. <laughs> All right, next up we got a treasure trove of long buried Paul Roger champagne has been rediscovered. So this is an interesting story. So back in, when the hell was the year? Um, it was, so 1887 to 98, 1890, 1898. Jeez. 98. So, um, oh, here's in the early hours of the morning, February 23rd, 1900, 
there was um, a disaster where there was a uh, a huge earthquake, and this uh, Laurent de Harcourt uh, from Paul Roger, uh Champagne is actually you know he he talks about it where it actually buried. Um, so what happened? Uh, there was a disaster precipitated by damped old car- cold weather that that caused a massive sinkhole to develop um, in the area, and it buried like part of their, um, I guess their their caves that they have that they age of champagne in. So they said five hundred casks of wine and one point five million bottles of champagne were lost in the event. So. What happened is though it it caved in and buried everything and they just left it. They just wrote it off back in the nineteen hundreds, like, yeah, we're never gonna get to it. Like, how are you gonna get to that? You know, you're not gonna strip mine the whole place. So they decided uh now, uh recently to start excavating it because they wanted to rebuild uh some more caves and you know, uh do an expansion. And I forgot what the expansion was for. It was like they're putting like another wing on their bottling area or something like that. And it, it kind it's like of a parking like, facility, wasn't it? Uh yeah, I think it was it was like a whole addition they're putting on. So they started excavating and they discovered like, hey, you know, we, we just found like, you know, they started, you know, taking it out and they said, you know, they started finding broken glass and like, oh, this is where the champagne and, and the wine must have been buried. So uh, over the two days after finding that, they started finding 25, you know, they found 25 more bottles that survived uh, of the champagne corked between 1887 and 1898. Like, that's incredible. So now I don't know, like, so what they said they're going to do with these bottles that are 118 years old plus, uh, they're actually going to share them with friends and and just like people that they know uh, just to have them. They're not going to sell them. They're not going to do anything. They're going to just enjoy them. Um, I almost wonder if there was like some kind of like insurance write-off so they can't really resell them. But um, Oh, possibly. But I, I mean, when you think like statute of limitations, would that, does that affect that or is that something totally different no idea then again like you would never have a 118 year old bottle of champagne normally so it's pretty cool that they're going to just open up the champagne and, and enjoy it but uh i'd be interested to to hear how it tastes it'd be great to taste it but you know i'll be having my 1500 mint juleps what, what what are you gonna wash it down with you gotta wash it down with this <laughs> that's right <laughs> So that's pretty cool. I wonder if they found any more, but um, it's pretty amazing. I guess, you know, if it gets covered and buried in, there's not a lot of air that gets in there. So it kind of locks it in. And so it must be pretty well preserved. So pretty amazing stuff. They have the timeline of stuff that happened. It's like, it starts from like, you know, when they started, blah, 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 blah. 1899, there's a whole, you know, Bad thing, pneumonia is like killing a bunch of people. And then 1900, the year next year, massive sinkhole that like destroys all this thing. 2018, they start finding it. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Better than finding an Indian burial ground like poltergeist, right? This is the flip side, the good side of it. <laughs> That's true. So very cool stuff. So moral story is... Just keep digging. You never know what you're going to find. Right. And next up, 
Let's get into the Genjula. I miss the Gandula music. I know, right? It's good stuff. So many people have commented to me. They're like, I love the Gandula. I'm like, I know exactly what you're talking about. They're the only ones with an operating Gandula. That's true. <laughs> so what do we got up this week, Brian? Oh, well, you want to actually cover this? This is you. So Frank's being of the week. Breaking beans. I can actually say it right now because my mouth is all messed up. Breaking beans. Um... So he sent us this one. Uh, it's called Ice. So this is a beautiful uh, strain. It's a hybrid, indica sativa hybrid. Um, and what it is is, so Nirvana Seeds created this, and they basically blended a bunch of seeds, uh, Skunk Number 1, uh, Afghani, Northern Lights, and Shiva uh, genetics into one potent seed line. So they're saying it's a high-density flower, um, with a lot of trichome production and it, they grow quite large. So, uh, growing indoors can be challenging. So it's, you know, better outdoors. Uh, but they're saying, uh, it's reported as having a petrol aroma, which. Mm, interesting. Gasoline, I guess, you know what you're getting into, right? Not exactly what I look for when I'm choosing a cannabis, but you know, if you're smoking that and it smells like gas, you know, you're getting something. Crunk. <laughs> yeah. High octane. Yeah. So they say it's a very heavy indica type buzz, uh, while some uh, variations can, can present a more up, uplifting sativa-like effect. So I guess it's kind of like steady, but there's still little variations in the strain. Uh, effects all look great. Uh, happy, uplifted, focused, talkative, and relaxed. Um, negatives, a lot of dry mouth. Um, Everything else is very minor, but you get a little paranoid, anxious, dry eyed, dizzy. Uh, it's basically dry mouth. So I would say, you know, and medically great for depression, stress, pain, inflammation, and nausea. So I'm just saying if I had something for inflammation, something like this. Something like right up your alley right now and what you could use. Exactly. Because it cures Bell's palsy. That Bell's palsy, cure, the cure for Bell's palsy. It's quite possible an interesting story that came about this week. You know, we, uh, we talk about our, our buddy Jefferson Beauregard sessions a lot. And he actually admitted that there may well be some benefits from medical marijuana. What? Yeah, I know it's crazy, right? I guess per, uh, perhaps he, uh, adjusted his, his st stock portfolio or was, you know, yeah, was financially incentivized in some way. Allegedly, perhaps. My broker told me about a new weed stock. I think it's really good for you. Yeah. he uh, He's actually was quoted saying there may be some benefits from medical marijuana and that it is perfectly appropriate to study cannabis. You know, was also quick to dismiss a mounting body of evidence that legal marijuana access is associated with reduced opioid issues. Acknowledging that he has seen some research indicating lower overdose deaths in states that allow cannabis in some form and that science is very important. The attorney general said he doesn't believe that will be sustained in the long run. So science is important, but I don't believe he doesn't believe it will be sustained in the long run. Like I'm not asking you to believe shit. I'm asking you to look at the friggin' evidence. There is documented statistics. 
kind of why it's called science. Mm. Neutral of belief. It's just science. It's you prove it or don't prove it. Yeah, I don't give a shit what you believe. You you could believe that, you know, that fairies make the grass grow. You know, like I proven that there's no dragons, but I believe there are dragons. That aliens paint the sky blue every morning. Like you could believe that if you want. But that doesn't doesn't mean anything when you, when it's not backed by science. That's right. All right. Next up, we got uh, NFL player makes medical medical marijuana history. So this was actually on the night of the draft. So the NFL draft was going on. Um, I guess leading up to this, there was a an NFL player named uh, Mike James, and uh, he he is that Rick's son? That's <laughs> <Yeah>, right. <laughs> Of the James family, you know, he's gonna hit Roger Goodell right on the, right on the head. <laughs> Unity in the face, slap. <laughs> so in 2013, he was prescribed opioid painkillers uh, after injuring his ankle in a Monday Night Football game. Within weeks, he developed a dangerous dependency on the drugs. So if anybody hasn't taken opioids, uh, unfortunately, I've had some uh, accidents and run in with like curbs and falling and a bunch of stuff uh they actually are addictive within i think they say what is it uh scientifically they say what three days you, you say, it's pretty quick yeah which is unreal because if you're you got a broken bone and you need you know opioids you're on it you got to take i think they limit you now uh but they used to you know prescribe you like yeah there's a few weeks of, of opioids and people were like ragingly addicted at the end of that um so he decided to to get himself off that wean off it and he started using marijuana um medical marijuana you know for his pain for pain management so the thing is with the nfl so the nfl and play and nfl players association prohibit active players from using marijuana as part of their league's policy on substance abuse however they actually put in i think this was pretty recently uh what's called the therapeutic use exemption indicating the athlete requires a substance to treat to treat a diagnosed medical problem. So James went through the whole process of putting together his stuff, getting doctors and 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 putting everything together and submitting it to the NFL. So he was, you know, he went through the process that they wanted him to go through. Medically everything should have gone through and they rejected his his um plea for getting that exemption. Um you know, it sucks that he got rejected and the NFL has different issues they need to address. Uh, but I think it's great that at least there's somebody that's actually pushing that, that, you know, clause in the system. And he said, he's going to keep pushing it. He said, he's not ashamed of it. He said he wants to live, you know, he wants to have a life to live and he doesn't want to be addicted to, uh, to opioids. Isn't it so ridiculous that a doctor can prescribe you opioids and everything? You're like, Oh, that's fine. A doctor prescribed it. Yeah. But then, you know, oh, Dr. Prescribes medical marijuana. Oh, I'm going to turn to a stoner. Yeah. No, you're not. How can you say as a, as a, as a league commission that, so somebody said that he needs this medically to sustain a better quality of life and you're going to say no? I mean, I'd question the ethics there, you know? I don't even get where the NFL stance comes from. You know, like, like what is it? Is it, are they... Are they in bed with the uh, the opioid producers? Um, like I, because again, it can't be a morality thing. Because look at the freaking NFL. The, the the point of the sport is to you know smash people in every single play in the head, preferably. Yeah, the NFL I think is softening on it. 
Like they had a hard stance thinking, oh, it's a drug. We don't want, you know, we don't want to promote drugs. We want to maintain an image. But I think in the last few years, they've had some younger players just retire early because they're like, screw it. I don't want to get injuries. I don't want to get concussions. I don't want to get, you know, messed up, hooked up on opioids because I got this pain. Um, so they, they retired early, some top, you know, top players. And I think they, that's where they soften because they realize like, look, we got to maintain our players health during, during the seasons and, you know, season to season. I think it's just a natural progression where if this can make their life better and they're not hooked on it and they have better career in the NFL, why wouldn't you let them do it? You know, really stupid to do it during a game. Cause if anything, it's not a performance enhancer. You know what I mean? Oh no, it's definitely not. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I still, yeah. I still don't know where the NFL, like, you know, I mean, again, it is kind of like a, I guess like an old school, a lot of like, you know, Southern religious, you know, old white guys that probably have a certain belief system that's been drilled in their heads. Running the league. That that are pretty much out of touch. They're very out of touch. Yeah. I mean, they're making money in spite of the moves that they're making. Cause I think they're doing a lot of stuff that's just hurting themselves, but people like watching football. That well, it's good. For, it's good for the short term. They're making tons of money right now. Who cares what's going to happen in five years? Yeah. I mean, I think I have to take a serious look at if, if the NFL ratings keep going down, like they have the last, was it two years or just last year where it really dropped off? Last two years, last year was horrible. Yeah, if they keep seeing that sort of, you know, downtrend, they're going to have to reevaluate some things because uh, if people stop caring, they're going to stop making money. And that's going to change a lot of opinions on a lot of things. Yeah, I think they had that whole backlash last year where people were kneeling to protest stuff during the national anthem. I think people just got pissed off that like, look, it's a national anthem. Why are you going to mess with it? And it wasn't that the pe- that the players were protesting is that the league didn't really have a strong stance on it. And I think people were like, well, fuck you guys. Not only that, I think that was one of it. And the other part of it, I think they just, they're not managing their brand well because they're put, trying to put football on every day. And honestly, it used to be great to have football on Sunday and then one game on Monday night. And it was great. Now you have Thursday, you have a Tuesday, like you might as well have Wednesday, Thursday, like it's becomes like baseball then. Yeah. If there's football on every day, like, eh, I don't want to watch that game, you know, but now football is on Sunday. You're like, Oh, I'm going to want to watch all the games at once. You know, it's different. Yeah. I think too, you know, kind of, you know, with the whole like Kaepernick thing and the, the, you know, the national anthem and the kneeling. Yeah. Again, you can, you can argue either side of it, but the one thing it does show is that the people, you know, the, the owners, the league and the players are on very different, they have very different belief systems. Oh yeah. And I think that's causing a lot of conflict. And I'm, I would think a lot of the fans probably are closer in their beliefs to the players than to the owners. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, it's funny. So a few weeks ago, Martellus Bennett came out and uh, he actually said 89%. He said in his estimation, about 89% of the players are smoking marijuana. Oh, wow. For medicinal reasons. Not just, you know, just to get high, but because think about it, you're in your off season, you got these injuries. You don't want to take opioids. You're, you know, you want to heal. Yeah. And it's funny how they come down so hard on, on 
cannabis, but yet, you know, steroids and every other sort of, you know, drug that kind of pumps you up, it gets you bigger. They, they haven't really, you know, they found ways to, to work around those. The three game suspension and blah, blah, blah. And you're right back out there. They actually said NHL pros and X NFL, X NFL and X NHL pros are actually stepping up saying cannabis is good medicine. That's awesome. So it's a beautiful thing. We're progressing. We're evolving as a society. Yeah, it's pretty cool. They had an uh, Riley Coat. Remember Riley Coat? Vaguely, yeah. Cote? Cote. That's, yeah. He came out and spoke about, I guess they had some some event in uh, Loveland, Colorado last month. That's awesome. But yeah, and you know, it's funny. They're not even talking about like THC infused, you know, like they're talking about CBD, CDB. Yeah. So you're not even getting the... um you know, the psycho psychedelic effects from the THC, just the CBD. And that's why like, you know, at least the, and this is what kills me. Like, so the NFL is not even recognizing there's a difference. It's like, at least recognize there's a difference between medical marijuana and marijuana, you know, or pot or whatever you want to call it. But there's a big difference. Mm -hmm. We'll get there. We're getting there slowly. Yeah, a lot of it is just uh, the generations and learning and not being so brainwashed. Yeah, it's just that old way of thinking, kind of indoctrinated. And people don't want to look at new evidence and, and new information. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about it today because I was having a conversation with my mom. So she's 78 now. And um, you know, she's like, I, I try to push myself out of my bubble of thinking. Because you, you get into like a group think or just a common think of the way you think about things. And, um, you know, I'm talking to my mom, I'm like, wow, she has her regimen every day. Like this is what she does, but she's in a, a set way of thinking. And it's like, you know, you're not going to change. You're not going to change that in some people, which is understandable, but you know, it's, it's kind of nice to be a person that's a little bit open to just considering other stuff, whether you agree with it or not. Yeah, because you know what? Like it's it's so easy to to become old and bitter and jaded and to not want to learn anything new or you're every all these these dumb kids and their stupid things they're doing and you know that that's sort of I I think that's that's the normal way of progressing and oh when we did things our you know back in our day it was the better way to do it and blah 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 but when you look at history and and over time you know that the new way of doing things becomes the norm, you know, like no one's going to be like, Oh, you know what? Having horses and buggies is way better than having cars. Screw these stupid cars. You know, we're going back to the old way of doing things. Can you imagine if you had to ride a horse and buggy to work every day? That would actually be kind of cool. Would it? I think for like the first week or two. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Horses shitting all over the, the road. And it's going to be like, take me a day to get to work. <laughs> Like, I'm not getting there in 50 minutes. I'm getting there in a half a day. You got to feed the horse while, it, while it's sitting there. You don't feed a car when it's just sitting there. But think about that commute. Yeah, it took me two hours and then I stopped. I had some coffee because the horse had to eat and then I got back in. <laughs> like, it'd be like a nice gentlemanly way to get to work. That's true. You're like, yeah, it takes me four hours to get to work every day. You know, that's when people start working right near where they live. Yep. With that. Let's go to Ski News. First off, 
this is a a nice little blog post from our our friends over at Parlor Skis, and one of the um, one of the big attractions for spring skiing in the Northeast is to go up to Tuckerman's in the um, Tuckerman's Ravine up in the White Mountains, and Parlor posted a blog post talking about the six keys to having a great day at Tuckerman's. And they actually took this article from Andrew Drummond, who has a blog called Ski the Whites. And he has um, a lot of good information. And, you know, they, they do a bunch of uh, uh, like slick swaps and selling of used gear on their site. And uh, here are the six essentials, things you're going to have to bring or remember when you're going up. First is gear. Make sure you have your crampons, lightweight and aluminum. Yes, two, the sun. Follow the sun and hit the lines as they warm up. Left gully has the shortest exposure, so that's best skied early while right gully and lobster claw are baking throughout the day. Hmm. Um, Also remember, nothing good happens after 3 p.m. when that shade line starts creeping across the bowl. Next. Terrifying, right? Yeah, right. Next, warm up. Start with some of the easier runs like right gully or left chute before sending. It's good to figure out the feel of snow and get your skis before getting rowdy. Next, layer up. This is Mount Washington after all. Weather changes quickly and you'll want to stay comfortable, which means bringing a shell, puffy, and mid-layer. And then he says that he throws an extra pair of gloves and some hand warmers because you never know how long you'll be out there. Next, enjoy the snow. If you're coming up for the weekend, embrace the chaos and enjoy the spectacle of spring skiing in the bowl. If you're lucky, you'll see a bit of everything. Cliff hucks, yard sales, and the full spectrum ski abilities with gear to match. And last off, explore. There's a lot more to ski than tucks. Go check out any of the neighboring ravines for a change of scenery and challenge yourself to ski something new once you've made your rounds in Tuckerman Ravine. That's pretty cool. I love that uh, picture at the end of the nighttime with all the stars. Oh, isn't that awesome? That looks fucking amazing. You actually buy that picture too on that website, the skithewhites.com. That is a really cool, like, I can only imagine just seeing that that view. Yeah, just no light pollution and nice and on a clear night. It looks unbelievable. It looks like a wall. looks like, like everything's so close, you know? It looks like a planetarium. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like the wall from Game of Thrones and then like a planetarium on top of that. <laughs> where's the dragon? That's <laughs> Yeah, where's the frozen dragon? Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. All right, next up we got for the first time um, in their history on June 3rd, the French resort of Val d'Isere is going to reopen after they've closed for the season. Boom. There's a lot of Brits that go to Val d'Isere uh, more than any other resort in the world. And now they can actually do it in their summer so, or spring or summer, whatever season they're considering it. Uh, but for the first time, 82 years, it's pretty crazy. So uh, from 7 to 12, 7 a.m. to 12, so only a few hours, uh, but it's going to open over uh, actually over a month after it's been closed for the winter season. So they made the decision um, because there's 
there's been a total of 30 feet that fell there. And there's still over eight feet of snow on the higher slopes and three feet down in the village. So they figured, hey, let's just open it up, run a few lifts, and uh, let people uh, enjoy the mountain. I think it's pretty cool. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's so cool that they uh, they're get, they had that much snow. Yeah. So actually, they're actually hoping that the runs and the lifts stay open for two weeks until the warm weather arrives. So they're saying they're going to open up only from 7 to 12. And then I guess they're going to go from there and see every day, like, are they going to keep opening? Um, and they're going to try to remain open through July 13th. Oh, that's awesome. Which is kind of nuts because... Uh, they're usually a little bit earlier than we are, and uh, that's that's pretty late. So that's pretty cool to see. That is cool. And if that does pan out, maybe I can go ski on my birthday. Boom! One of my one of my bucket list items. My birthday's in July, and I want to ski on my birthday. So I either have to go to South America. You want a heartbeat? That place is the bomb. I know, right? All right. Next up, report. 2018 international report on snow and mountain tourism blame major corporations and higher prices for falling ski visits in the U S they had a kind of optimistic view of global ski industry. And they said, it's a pleasure to notice that after three years of stagnation or decrease, the total figure of skier visits worldwide is now showing a trend upwards again. And so the main reason for this uptrend is growing interest in developing markets such as China. The Western market continues to be flat. And in North America, the trend for bringing individual resorts under the umbrella of major corporations with higher financial expectations has resulted in ongoing rising prices with a negative effect on the number of practicing skiers. So biggest problem in the u.s is increasing prices paid by a declining number of customers it's called uh, being a publicly owned company with stockholders it fucks everything up seen all over the place with every company yeah the window price of a daily lift ticket rose from an average of 59 dollars a decade ago to 105 during the 15-16 season Average daily rates in accommodations in the Western resorts also rose from an average of 30% from 09. And they were showing the, um, the top world resorts in millions of ski visits. And number one is La Plan. Uh, number two, Skivelt Wilderkaiser. Number three is Le Arcs. Number four, Zalbach Hinterglem. And then number five, Ischgl. Oh, wow. Domnown Silveretta Arena. Ben Whistler. So Whistler was number one in North America. You know, it's crazy. Ishkel, it's like it's all Europeans go, not a lot of Americans. It's wild. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just a giant, you know, a giant area. You know, wasn't it? I think size-wise, it's one of the top three or four, isn't it? I think it's up there. I don't know exactly. Wow. Yeah, for the North America, it was Whistler. Then Breckenridge, then Vale, then Park City. So, but you look at this list, I mean, there's so many other European resorts that are, you know, way higher than all the, the big U.S. ones. Hmm. Very cool. Mountain Creek did not make the list somehow. Yeah, so they said a trend... Um, to make ski less affordable and especially for the beginners who usually purchase daily passes, the less discounted tickets. 
And um, overall, the business model of the large U.S. resorts summarizes in getting always more money from always fewer customers. So the final total, they said about 130 million skiers worldwide. Wow. 3 million people skiing. Yeah, it's crazy, right? That is pretty cool to know that you're one of 130 million. Yeah, Pacific Northwest had their best season on record. And the Rocky Mountains had their second best season on record. Hmm. And the Midwest had their worst season since the records began in 78-79. Wow. And there are now 14 indoor snow centers that have opened in China between 2015 and 2017. Wow. I wonder if China's going to be the place to go next. No, I doubt it. Unless you want to ski indoors. Yeah, really? Because of all the pollution and lack of mountains and snow. Because they're saying for the next Olympics, which they're going to be hosting, is it the next one or the one after? I think they're they're hosting... Yeah, the next winter one is going to be in China. And they said it's going to be the first time they're going to be on all man-made snow. Oh, really? That's some future Olympic games. So, yeah. Where is it? Um, oh, is Beijing 2022? So they hosted what? Was it 06 or 08? They had the summer. Now they're having the winter. Why? Yeah, because I'm like, they had it not too long ago. Yeah. Wow. I remember Nagano. Nagano was pretty good. That was Japan, though. Yeah. That was actually pretty good. And then Japan's hosting the summer. Tokyo, I think, the next one. Oh, that's right. Lillehammer. Wow, 1994. Yep. Breaking it back to 94. So, interesting. We'll have the link in the show notes, but there's a whole report that came out, and there's tons of statistics you know, broken out by country, and uh, a lot of good stuff in there if you want to unpack that. All right, next up, uh, not on a happier note, but a New York skier is arrested for lying about being stuck overnight on a lift. So, shit that he is, 37, was arrested for crying wolf and being stranded on a chairlift. So, he wasn't arrested originally. So, he was at Gore Mountain Ski Center in New York. Um, pretty good mountain. But uh, I guess what happened on March 31st, he was last seen at 3.15 p.m. Not found till the list was spinning at 8 a.m. the following day. So, he's a local guy. He claimed he was stuck on the lift for 17 hours. And the authorities started investigating, like, what's going on? This is like, a, you know, this is a big claim. So... He was saying that he was stranded 30 feet in the air overnight and was forced to endure snow and freezing temperatures. Um, But some of the things that he was saying didn't add up. So they started saying he didn't have signs of frostbite or hypothermia, you know, being out there that long, that cold, uh, probably would have signs of that. Uh, Deeper investigation uh, revealed that he had a lot of inaccuracies to his statements. Um, and they didn't like disclose what parts of the statements were false, but I know they said, you know, he didn't have signs of, of like freezing or, or, you know, cold snow temperatures. So, uh, they determined that his statement was false and, um, they're actually saying that, uh, I guess he was trying to sue that he was stranded and now I think he's out on criminal charges or something like that for fraud. Wow. 
yeah, it's uh, you know, don't be a dick. Don't just uh, hey, if you want to try to make money, you know, go do it somewhere else. I don't know. It's pretty uh, pretty stupid to do. Yeah, I wonder if like they checked his credit card and they're like, hey, he went to dinner here and went to the outlets in Lake George. Stay at a hotel, dude. You know? Posted on Facebook. Yeah. He probably posted on Facebook like him drinking beers that night with friends. <laughs> Oops. Woo, look at this. Doing picklebacks all night. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And then we have one last story. Uh, Crystal Mountain, Michigan, renamed Slope in honor of 107-year-old skier who passed away in February. On April 21st, the ski community of Crystal Mountain, Michigan came together to celebrate the memory of a dedicated skier whose passing this February left behind a myriad of enthusiastic life inspiration and incredible memories. The community gathered in the base of cheers for an on-slope honoring of the late Lou Batori, who passed away at 107 years old. Oh, wow. Spent almost a century on skis and started competing with NASTAR early on. With each new decade, after he turned 80 years old, Lou would petition to create new age groups. In the past, NASTAR age categories only went up to 80 plus, but not if Lou had anything to say about it. When Lou turned 90, he called me and said that we should create another age group for 90 plus. This is from uh, the head of NASTAR. That's all. He said, I was happy to abide. When he turned 95, he called again, asking to create another age category. And when Lou celebrated his 100th birthday, my phone rang again. And once more, when he turned 105, he was always such a gentleman and so friendly. It was a pleasure to have him in, uh, involved in the program. He, uh, When he was a kid, he grew up in Europe. He had a pair of you know, homemade wooden skis that he skied on. Lashed him to his feet too, right? Yeah, it's the only way to do it, right? Leather straps. That's that's baller as fuck right there. Yeah. He uh when asked about his longevity in a TV interview, he said the key is a good wife, only drinking the best quality liquor, and picking your parents carefully. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And he said, waiting to be carted away is a stupid waste of life. You can replace anything, your shoes, your house, your belongings but you cannot replace time. So make the best of it. Boom. Drop the mic right there. That's the, uh, that's the way to do it. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's cool. The, uh, it's too short to drink PBR. That's what he's saying. Pretty much. Yep. Only drink the good stuff. So that's what I got out of that. That's sounds about right to me. Cheers to you, Lou. An inspiration. And now, it's time for our main topic. Brian, what are we talking about today? Well, this is the, we're recording this on May 2nd. So we are going to unfortunately declare it almost ski season now. It's almost, almost ski season. <sighs> yeah. There is a story that Colorado is getting hit with snow um, today. Like they're, they're potentially getting up to like, a foot because there's a couple of mountains. There's a, I think Loveland, Loveland, a basin, and maybe one other are still open out there. Maybe copper. Is it, but there's three open that are getting uh could be getting about a foot, but unfortunately we are, uh, we're calling it a wrap at this point. You know, once you get into early May and where we are and 
unfortunately, the way life has kind of panned out for both of us the last year. Uh, it, last week got another six inches, didn't it? The 30th. Dude, Mount Snow did like a bunch of places up in Vermont did, yeah. Some of our buddies are still going to be skiing, which is pretty cool. Yeah, but unfortunately for us, we're uh, we're calling it a season at this point, which, you know, I'm coming to grips with. I can't say I'm happy about it. This has been this has been a weird season for both of us, I think. I mean, you obviously, I mean, you've you've made a move to freaking Florida. So not even like Jacksonville would be different. Like this is um, now this is like this is like freaking hot all the time. It's like summer all the time, which some people are like, oh, that's great. I'd love to be there. I'm like, I have no idea what season it is. It's mm-hmm. like it was almost ski season at the beginning of ski season for me. It was like 80 degrees. I was like, what? Yeah, it's been weird because, you know, above you know, the last couple of seasons, when we first started doing the podcast and, you know, we're doing like share houses up in Vermont and we were going up, you know, once a month, two times a month, three times a month, and four times a month, you know, and, and going skiing. Yeah, like and uh, every weekend I was like, oh, I'm only going to go a few times. And I'm like, no, nope. every weekend it was like up there. Yeah. So, so for us this year, it's been, you know, it's been a, a gigantic change. And then, you know, too, it's having, having my, my son now it's, it's made things more complicated, moving a little further away. And, um, you know, there's, there's definitely, definitely positives to the, you know, the move that, you know, I can't talk for you, but for my move, I, there's been a, you know, a lot of positives, but the, the biggest negative and the thing that kind of chaps my ass every day is knowing that I'm further away from the mountains. And I know that I cannot sustain this for a long period of time. Um, figure you get your kid on, on skis at like what? Three, four. Forget that man. Two, two and a half. Boom. Yeah. I'm up there in no time. No, but I'm just thinking for, for myself, not being up there all the time, being in the mountains. Like I don't deal well in flatlands with people who like the warmth. I just don't like, I get, I get antsy. I get annoyed. I just, I need that mountain air. I need that cold. I just, uh, it just doesn't feel like, again, like this, you know, talking about Lou and saying, you know, like living, doing the things that you want to do that make you happy, that make you feel alive. When I'm not in the mountains, when I'm not doing that kind of thing, I don't feel right. I don't feel like I feel like I'm supposed to. So I, uh, I, I've needed to figure something out in the next, by the next season. Because uh, it's just doesn't, it's just not the same and it doesn't feel. Yeah. I think for me, it's like been, um, so this season was weird because I moved down to South Florida and it's like, you know, Tampa area and I didn't have those weekend trips. Like even the ability just mentally knowing that I could just get in the car and go like even four hours, two hours, an hour and and get some skiing in. Uh, So that kind of played with me a little bit. But then when I was down here, I was like, you know, well, it didn't feel normal because I left when it just started getting cold. It just kind of stayed summer the whole time. So I'm like, I never really, I still don't feel like I've missed winter because I don't think winter came, but yet I got, it feels like you missed, like it's like, like endless summer, right? Yeah. It's kind of, there's like hot and not so hot. <laughs> like I was talking to somebody the other day, like, don't worry about it. after a few years, you'll get used to it and it'll be, you'll, you'll feel like it's winter. And I'm like, you know, this year there, there wasn't like, you know, a, a time because it's usually about like two months where it's like 
pretty chilly. You know, it's like fifties in the fifties or something like that for down here is really cold. Um, I did see somebody wearing like a Canadian goose jacket. <laughs> Are you serious? 50 degrees. Somebody's walking around Canadian goose and they're freezing their ass off. I'm like, well, I guess they're a Florida native, you know, that's to them. It's the middle of winter. So I guess it's all relative, but, um, I thought that was, uh, that's bad. I thought a dude yesterday, it was like almost 80 and I saw a dude wearing like a suit, like a, you know, what, what is that? Like, is it tweed that like thick suit material? Yeah. He had like a suit on and a scarf. Damn. I'm like, dude, it's almost 80 degrees. Wow. That's crazy. Weirdos. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'm starting to look at it differently. I'm like, if I can't get those, those weekends, I mean, I got two really good ski trips this year. I didn't get a lot of days, but I got two really good trips. One to Whistler, one to Val Terenz. And I got to say that was, that made, you know, that was good. I mean, the one trip I skied almost every, I'd skied every day. And the other one, I, I just took a day off. So I got only, yeah, I still got 11 days in, you know, it's not too bad. Yeah. So what would you say were some of your, uh, your highlights of the season? So definitely those two trips. Um, I got to say Val Terenz was good because it was a smaller group that we, we traveled with and they were really, it was a lot of really good skiers and not a lot of attitudes, which is, which is good. So, uh, the Hoboken ski club came through. It was a nice trip, well-organized. Um, and I gotta say the place was, was awesome. I mean, we had good ski conditions, uh, great terrain. Like there was a lot of advanced terrain. Um, and we, we got lucky. Like we had bluebird days, we had like, you know, good snow. So it, it was really good. Uh, so that, that was definitely a highlight. Um, also being able to say I skied in, France now and just the local customs and stuff were, were pretty cool. So it was nice. It was, it was, um, it was good. A week, a week was good. Uh, I wouldn't say, you know, I wanted to do more than a week there. Uh, so that was probably one of the highlights just, just there. And then I tell you, Whistler was the other highlight was doing the hike up to the glacier and skiing down even in shitty weather, but with good snow, that was, that was really good. Uh, got to do some turns with Brian and Nick, uh, and Liz. That was kind of fun. Um, so those are, those are definite highlights for me. I mean, the, the day that we skied together, uh, in Whistler, we had a good day. I mean, it was, I froze my ass off with <laughs> bottom. Like, you know, if you talk about like personally, like how was I feeling that day? I was feeling like dog shit, but I tell you, it had great conditions, you know? Low visibility, great conditions. So that that was a highlight that one day. Yeah, that was I would say that was probably my highlight of the season was that day at Whistler because we got that like unexpected foot of snow, yeah. and it just was. They were all it was low visibility, and we were out there. It was great, and it was a Thursday too. So you know, people weren't there from the weekend leftovers, and the new people for the next weekend hadn't really rolled in yet. So it was just like a good timing on our part. Yeah, that was good. And we liked that because again, we were driving up because we, I can't, you were there Saturday and then I came up Wednesday and we were driving up from Seattle. I mean, we're driving to Vancouver and it was 60 degrees. I'm like, oh shit, this is going to be not so, no one, not so wonderful. We get to Whistler it was 53. I'm like, it's still, you know, it was around four o'clock. So it was still pretty warm. But then all of a sudden, you know, that night it dropped in temperature and the snow came and uh, 
made the next couple of days fantastic. So that that was a good. I'm sorry, go ahead. Between the, uh, the Whistler Bud Shop, they made the trip, the trip great. <laughs> that is a a huge yeah thing to know, and then knowing that, I mean that's a that's that was a, a tremendous surprise. Dude, if you go to Whistler, I'm telling everybody out there, this is the ultimate hookup. So I thought I was going to get arrested. I thought it was bullshit. My buddy Rem hooked us up because he was like, I have a friend that's been here. He's used it. And he actually said it's legit. He's referred other people. I looked it up online. It looked legit. And and still when you order, you think you're getting arrested. Like, it's just... It's a mountie at your door. Oh, my God. <laughs> and you build a card online. You're like, okay, can I check out? Like, then I think it's maybe a little bit more legit. They're like, no, you got to write write down your order, figure out how much you owe, and then text us your order and we'll bring it. I'm like, now this sounds shady. <laughs> Dude was there 15 minutes. Boom. Right in the middle of the week. I'll tell you what, pain management. Oh yeah. Right there. It was great. So yeah, that made, that was a little add on to the trip. That was, uh, that was fantastic. Gotta say. Yeah, that was nice. Well, next year, you know, if, uh, if everything goes according to plan, um, Canada is still supposed to legalize it on July 1st. I know there's some senators or whatever they call them up there, uh, are trying to push back and stop it. But, you know, it's a, it's supposed to be moving towards, you know, full legality across the whole country, July 1st. So it could be managers rolling up to the shop and, you know, having the, uh, the cannabis buffet waiting for you not needing some dude to deliver it to your room. I'm actually all for planning a, uh, a whistle trip every year. I'm not against that. Go right there or stop and say hi to Nick and Liz and go up, but I don't know. It's a nice place to go. Great skiing all the time. Great little village. You know, I, I, we talked about it when we talked about the Whistler recap, you know, the village, it kind of, uh, I, I don't love the village. I just, there's just too many just scenesters and posers and just people there to like, you know, go shopping. Like, I, I don't know. I, uh, I really, there's so many other places that are not that much further away that we need to explore. You know, we got Revelstoke, we got Red Mountain. Um, there's just so many other places. So there's very packaged after a while. Everything is very manicured. Like, you know, what's there all the time. It's the, you know, people that pay to be in the village are in the village, kind of, you know. Yeah. But the mountain itself is f- fucking awesome. You know, like Whistler and Blackcomb are so awesome, the terrain. Um, but you have to kind of deal with all the, the village nonsense afterwards. I mean, it's nice you have the, the all the amenities there, which are nice if you want to take advantage of them. You got the comforts. Mm-hmm. That's a good part of it, you know. Uh, you don't have to take advantage of them. So I guess it's kind of, you know take it or leave it, but there's no grungy, like local vibe there. It's all. There's like one or two bars. Like we, I I don't know if you guys ever, if you guys hit it this time, but when last time when me, you and Nick went up that one, like the one, like townie bar that we went to, that was like my favorite bar that we hit there. It was the name of that place. That was a local bar. That was, (sighs) I forget the name of it, but yeah, it was, um, by like that little grocery store kind of behind there. Yeah, I actually thought about trying to go there, but I was like, I was on the trip with like 50 other people. But if anybody says anything, you, you're not going by yourself. You're going with like, like 20 people. You know? Yeah, right. Like, yeah, let's just hang out and 
do whatever. It was nice. I mean, you, when you go with that many people, you kind of make your own like events when you go out, but you're not, you're not really sampling local stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why like, you know, I, I, I'd prefer something more like a Telluride kind of experience where you have, you know, the little strip of downtown, but then you have all these little, you have a lot of locals hanging out there and there's, you know, funky places to go and things aren't as, as manicured. That's how we got Twiddle. That's how we found Twiddle, man. I can't believe they're coming here. They're following us now. <laughs> Twiddle feed. Every time you look on Instagram, we got Twiddle. I know they're huge. So Whistler, you know, we talked about it ad nauseum a couple episodes ago. You know, one of my, my highlights too is, uh, you know, we, um, I went out back in December to Killington with Andrea and then her mom came up to watch the baby. And then her and I got to ski a couple of days together, which was awesome. Cause she hadn't skied since, uh, you know, in a year because of, you know, being pregnant and everything. And, uh, it was just nice to, to get back to that, to kind of her and I skiing together and, uh, you know, and it was right before Christmas too. So like, there's still like, it's early in the season and you feel like you have the whole season in front of you and Christmas is coming up. And it's just, it's like, that's like my favorite time of the year is like that early mid December time. Cause it's like, you've gotten through all the shit of the year and now it's like just it's celebration the next couple of weeks and you're going and you're starting ski season. So that's a, a personal favorite time of the year for me. Yeah, I think one one of the other highlights, it was good and bad. It was a highlight and a low light. So I brought my um my new my now favorite pair of skis everywhere I went this year on the two trips. So I have the DPS, you know, those whaler hybrids that um I got two years ago, year and a half ago, something like that. Kind of last season. Um and I brought them with me to to France and to Whistler. And it's funny, I thought about, you know, do I bring them, do I not bring them? Cause then I had to pay baggage. And I also, this year was difficult cause I, I flew into New York, worked and then flew out with the ski club that's out of New Jersey. So it was kind of like an, a trip on top of a trip and a lot of travel. Uh, and I still brought my skis and I'm glad I brought them. Cause I'm like, you know, when I was in Europe, I was like, there's no way I'm going to rent these skis. Like I could have, but I would have really had to look for them. And they were the size skis that I, that I wanted. They're the skis that I own that I've skied on before. So I'm kind of like, it was great just having those. And I tell you what, I really appreciated having good skis and got my, my use out of them this year because, uh, I was able to bring them with me. Um, I gotta say that's, I kind of, if I had, if I had, you know, next year, I guess I'd kind of be on the fence a little more because the skis are, you know, now they're, they're hitting three years old and, you know, you want to start trying new skis and stuff like that. But I was glad I got to, uh, to enjoy them this year. And bring them with me. Yeah. That's a really good point. Cause you know, we were always kind of the, uh, in the, in the belief system of, Oh, you know, we'll just rent when we're there and we'll, you know, we'll get depending on what the you know conditions are. But, uh, the last two years, you know, I just, when we were out in Jackson, I was so annoyed and frustrated with the rental process. And when I got these new boots now that have the, um, what's the, the walk to ride, um, base. And I, I needed to get a particular, you know, the binding to fit. And most of the rentals, they only have like one option if you're lucky. And it's usually something you don't want to ski on. So I was like, you know what, starting from now on, I'm always bringing my skis and, you know, same experience as you. I, I just, I bought a, these, uh, the black crows 
bought them last February, used them one day when I shouldn't, I, I didn't even need them that day. They were too wide and too, it was, they were a pain in the ass actually, but I brought them out West, you know, and I, and that, that, you know, foot of snow day at Whistler, they were perfect. And, uh, I was really glad I had them. And it feels good. Cause it's like you skied on a horse. So it's not like you're starting over. You just put them on like old friends. Let's go. Let's, let's hit it. Not just some like beat up shitty rental ski that's been used by uh, you know hundred other people smashing through rocks. Really turned down like no, they're they're adjusted the way you want, you know. Yeah, I gotta say one of the lowlights, and this is just <laughs> dumbass. Um, there, I think when I was at Whistler, I skied half a day with the in in hike mode, in walk mode. Oh, really? Because <laughs> I keep forgetting. I stop or I do something, you know, I'm in walk mode and then I forget to put him into ski mode and I just start skiing. I'm like, you know, the ski feels a little weird, but maybe it's just me. I got to get used to it. Maybe my muscles tired. Maybe I'm a little got to stretch out, whatever. And I start skiing and I'm like, fuck, I was in walk mode the whole time. <laughs> no, I think a good idea for a, for an app would be a ski boot that has some sort of like a status indicator goes to your phone. So if you're starting to ski, you get like an alert on your phone that says like, Hey man, you are in hike mode. Might want to change that. Just beep. Yeah. Start beeping at you. Ah, oh, so annoying. But then you put them on and you're like, damn, let's go kill it. Cause I got, I, I'm, I'm back again. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I was like doing like, <laughs> doing like off trail, like all sorts of shit. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny, but it's how we learn, right? That's that's true. I'd say one low light for me is we were up. I went up with uh, with the aforementioned Rem and our buddy Harry up to to Killington in January, and you know you're thinking you're going up in like early early mid January. It's going to be you know cold and snowy and perfect. We um, we went up on a, a Wednesday night. Great day Thursday. Friday, the temperature went up to like, I think, 58 degrees and rainy. Wow. And it just, you know, the rain just kills everything. And then, the, you know, obviously the um, the warmth melts things. So you have that double whammy of the warmth and the rain. And then that night, that 58, it actually went down to like eight. <laughs> so it dropped like 50 degrees in a matter of like 12 hours. And everything was just a freaking sheet of ice. And it was so cold and so nasty. So you you go and you'd ski like two or three runs. And it would just be like everyone was inside. Like everyone's like, yeah, screw it. We'll start drinking. Because it was like MLK weekend. So everyone's got the Monday off. And everyone's just inside. They're like People are like, I had more drinks than I've had runs today. And this is like 1130 in the morning. So, you know, you make the best of it. But it's uh, that's sometimes what you get, unfortunately. Like, you know, if you can't be up there every weekend or you know whenever you have full control of your destiny you sometimes get those weekends or, or days where you think it's going to be great you think you know, you're picturing your 28 degree bluebird day uh but it uh it doesn't pan out and all you can do is make the best of it because you know there's going to come that day when it's 102 degrees in august and you're going to be like god damn it i wish i was skiing i don't care how cold it is I'm, i wish i was doing that and that's like like last year last season in March when I got my frostbite, that's exactly what I was telling myself. I'm like, you know what? 
it's freaking the second weekend in March and you have this great of conditions and it's this cold. Like you just in two months, it's going to be super hot and miserable. And that's what I did. And that's how I got frostbite. And you know what? If I had the same choice again, I'd do the exact same goddamn thing. There you go. You don't saw that, that toe off and get a new one, right? It was only part of the toe. And I took, had some aspirin and I put it in like Epsom salts and I was fine. A little, a uh, little Schwetzka, you good. Keep the blood flowing. That's the key. Yeah, no, I think that's what makes it worth, uh, worth going out though. You get your good and bad days. It's all part of it. Yep. Strikes and gutters, peaks and valleys. So yeah, so it was definitely a, a, a different ski season this year. Yeah. But you know, we, um, we did what we could. Yeah. We we still kept the podcast going, which made it, you know, something to look forward to every week and kept up on the news and what was going on. We didn't ski as much, but you know, we um we have plans. We have a master plan over the next couple of years to uh to remedy that. So we're gonna keep doing this. Yeah. I mean we got through it and the the good thing for me is I'm able to plan now, knowing what I'm facing up for next season. Now I can plan accordingly, hopefully, you know. Mm-hmm. We got some some other things we're working on this summer that we're looking forward to rolling out in the fall. And uh, yeah, we're uh, we're we're looking to take this whole venture, this whole undertaking to the next level in the next year. So we're glad you guys are along for the ride. We uh, you know we love skiing and just being part of the ski industry that much that we want to you know be a bigger part of it and keep taking it to the next level and keep keep trying new things and keep meeting new people and doing more interviews and getting out to more events so we're going to keep pushing this we're going to we want to try a few new things and you know we we love this and we love that you guys are checking us out so we really do appreciate it and um we hope to be meeting up with more of you guys and, and again going to the uh, the next level with this boom skibumpodcast.com check it out under the ropes. All right, so we got a new thing out there. If anybody hasn't heard of it, I don't know why they haven't? Uh, Austin, where have you been? If you haven't heard of this, so the uh, you know everybody's into cryptocurrency these days, and Oscar Meyer is not staying out of the. They are getting in. <laughs> Both both fists are blazing. Uh, so they came out with the Baycoin, uh, which is a, coin, a crypto coin that you can mine and hold on to. And it actually is valued at the price. So one Baycoin equals a number of slices of bacon. I love this. They're keeping the bacon, bacon as a currency, which actually, if you think about it, that should have been a currency since, I don't know why we're using money. You could have just used bacon to start. But uh, yeah, so they're uh, they they want you to start mining, and they want to um, they want to set the standard for bacon. Uh, so I like it. You go to their site. We have the link on our uh, show notes, and you can actually see the current Bitcoin value, uh, which is fluctuating. This went live uh, not too long ago. Was it last week? I think it was. It was yeah, not no more than a week or two ago. When it went live, it it started at twelve slices, which I think is one package, right? Um, so one bacon, eight to fourteen pieces, eight to fourteen pieces of bacon is one package. Is one package. So twelve is about average. It went all the way up, shot up, 
uh, today, early this morning, to 24 slices. That's like two packages of bacon. I mean, that's that's where you're really making making money right there. Uh, went all the way down to three slices about 7 a.m. And now it's back up to about nine slices. So it's uh, it's volatile. You can get in and uh, you can actually uh, make some bacon. <laughs> <laughs> so how does it actually work? Like, do you just, like, I'm trying to understand what's going on here. So what they're doing... So it's kind of like cryptocurrency slash a, a um, like a contest. Like, so uh, it, it's like a game. So there's an instant win game and then there's um, the, you can earn more on Twitter and, and stuff like that. So it's weird. So they say to play, um, the period is from, this is only going from April 30th through May 14th. Um, and there's two phases. So the first phase is instant win. So there's links and instructions to, to reveal whether or not you receive a Bitcoin uh, as like a contest, right? So that's the phase one. And let's see, where's phase two? So everybody has to cash out by May 21st or you forfeit your prizes. So whatever, because the Bitcoins will expire. Well, I don't, I still don't get how you get Bitcoin. Uh, there's like a link, uh, oscarmeyerbitcoin.com and there's instructions to actually win Bitcoin. Uh, here's how Bitcoin works. Yeah. You register and then you can, you can actually win it. So it's not really like you're mining it. You're kind of mining it by registering, I guess, so to speak. Uh, and then phase two, which is May 8th through the 14th. Um, where is that? I just lost it. So phase one's the instant game and phase two is... If you're the first player to win an instant game on or after one of the randomly generated prizes, you'll be a potential winner. So I don't know. I guess it explains it all through that that link of how you beat how you, how you could win. So I guess they want you to keep coming back, like during the first phase and the second phase. But what this really breaks down to is this is not a cryptocurrency at all. It's really just a token. It's some sort of yeah, it's yeah. A, a token, and they fluctuate the prize just to kind of make it look interesting. Probably based on demand or number of entrants or something. But now here's the um, here are the prizes, approximate retail values, and the prizes. So they're giving away two thousand coupon prizes, and so the value via the chart via the website. So they're saying one to seven slices is about a half a pack. Eight to 14 is one pack. And then they're going to give away like free half pound pack, free pound packs, all the way up to uh, three pounds. They're going to be giving away. Nice. Approximate value, 24 bucks. Boom. Booyah. It's cute. It's uh, interesting. You can check your Bitcoin and, uh, and play around. <laughs> so yeah, you've only got a few weeks to make this happen. So right now. Do it right now. I need my bacon. Keep us posted. <laughs> All right. Next up. So in another cryptocurrency 
related story. This is actually a real one. The show Silicon Valley a few weeks ago. If you know, we talked about it in the past. We're we're big fans of the show. And in the episode, the one developer Gilfoyle had a um, <laughs> had his computer set up uh, based on like the Bitcoin volatility. Whenever it, like you know was a particular. He didn't say exactly, but when it hit a particular level, it would trigger um, <laughs> a song that was. Um, you suffer by napalm death cranked up on his uh, speakers. I guess he said whenever Bitcoin crosses a uh, a particular threshold, you know, it made it either uh, financially viable for him to mine it or not. So he had to like turn off his uh, his raid based on, you know, if it was above that or below that. So it just, they would have a joke throughout the episode where it's like, oh, I guess Bitcoin is pretty volatile right now. So it would just like play this like loud, like death metal, like like every like couple seconds and like scare everybody in the office and this company or this this person or people have created a site called bitcoinvolatility.io and you can put in a particular bitcoin price that you want to have it be uh your baseline and if it goes above or below that it will uh it will play said music for you (laughs) which is pretty funny and the current Bitcoin price right now, according to the site, is ninety-two fifty. So, damn. There you go. Back up. Back up. Yep. Well, there was a story today that Alexis Ohanian, the guy, the founder of Reddit, married to Serena Williams. He was interviewed in Forbes, and he believes that Ethereum is going to hit fifteen thousand this year. Damn. I'm holding on to mine then. It's currently at seven hundred and sixteen. So. Pretty cool. I guess uh, Serena's uh, shaking his brain. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what she's doing to him, but yeah, hopefully he's right. Yeah, because then we can scheme more next year if that happens. <laughs> All right, now what do you do with your Bitcoin when you have them and you cash them in? I think you buy a 1952 Mickey Mantle rookie card. That's the first thing I would buy. Exactly. So, you know, it's funny. I was talking to somebody this week because I was doing a garage sale, running a garage sale with my mom. And uh, somebody asked if I had collector cards. And I'm like, I don't know, are people still collecting them? He's like, yeah, I'd look through them. Uh, And he's like, do you have any, like, um, the hell was he asking for? Power Ranger cards and something else. And I was like, I didn't realize people collect those. He's like, yeah, and the figurines. I was like, whoa. So, People still collecting. Um, and if you're a big collector, this is, you know, this is one of the prize cards. So Mickey Mantle rookie card sold for $2.88 million. God damn. Damn. And that was like probably giving away free in a pack of like gum or something, or I don't know, was it a tobacco card or I think they were just no, they were tops. They were like regular baseball cards then. Yeah. So they started selling for a penny a price, uh, then ten a penny, uh, then you know. Uh, in in 1952, they were basically just trying to get rid of them. They're just trying to give them away. Um, and now, the record price for a baseball card was still the Honus Wagner for 3.12 million. That's crazy. Well, the article also says that um, the Mantle Tops card is extraordinarily valuable due to its rarity. Few bought the cards at the time, and they were being sold too late in the baseball season. And it said that Cy Berger, a Topps card pioneer, is said to have started selling them for a penny a piece, then 10 for a penny, and eventually dumped more than 300 cases of the 1952 decks 
into the ocean to get rid of them. That was back in the day when you dumped anything into the ocean, right? Like, yeah, we got toxic waste. Yeah, ch- chuck it in the water. There's water right there. Just chuck it in there. Yeah, pretty much. That's what they did. They just chemical waste. Yeah, building materials you don't want. Just chuck them in the ocean. Asbestos, junk. Yeah, dump it in the river, dump it in the ocean. It's all good. As long as you don't let the commies take over, everything's going to be okay. They're, with their cannabis and their fancy ways. Turned into a friggin' pacifist at weed. One of my favorite quotes about baseball cards, like I was a huge collector and my parents who are scaling down have dumped all my baseball cards and hockey cards back on me recently. And, um, <laughs> and I was just looking at them laughing. My favorite quotes ever is George Carlin talked about, you know, baseball cards. And he's like, yeah, I used to like baseball cards as a kid. And then I realized they're just pictures of men. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just just pictures of dudes. That's really all it is. But I'm selling them to other people that want to buy pictures of dudes. You know what? Gary Vaynerchuk had a he was on Joe Rogan's podcast maybe like a year or so ago, and that's one of the things he talked about. He's like, you have no idea how much money you have in your house just with things that you don't want. Like there's there's so many people who will buy the things that you think are junk. You know, like just go in your house. You can find hundreds of dollars, maybe thousands of dollars of stuff that someone will buy. Dude, I'm going through like, so we had a, a garage sale because my mom's looking to sell the house and cleaned out a lot of stuff. And I'm uncovering stuff that I didn't even know my mom collected. She has like these, um, I don't even know what the hell kind of dolls and plates and shit. I'm like, I don't even know what she has these collectible, like to like Raggedy Ann collectible plates. I'm like, I didn't even know they made these. She collected them, you know. And there's other people that want to buy them. I'm sure. That generation, man, they were collectors. That's for sure. Yeah, Please. that was a sign of success for them. You know that they they made it. They were able to you know buy all this stuff. Remember the plate fad? Everybody was making a plate. Like, oh, you got to get these collector plates. Vaguely, yeah. My my parents have some some weird stuff like that. Yeah. It was huge. And then they had dolls, like collector dolls for everything. It's crazy. Have a uh, high flute and ski bum, like action doll. Oh, come we need to get action figures made of ourselves. I think we do. That would be cool. We can make, get them made and then we'll give them away. <laughs> yeah, right. That would be a great giveaway. Let's see. And I could do the bobblehead. We can make our own bobbleheads. Should get. Yeah, we can just like 3D print them. Like we'll make one or two of them up and have them 3D printed. That's a good idea. They're not cheap, but I think we're worth it though. Oh, they're saying 14 bucks. I saw one 69 bucks. I'm like, yeah, it's not cheap. <laughs> we may have to do that. I think that's a good investment. That's a solid, that's bobblehead futures. <laughs> yeah. Bobblehead futures. You better get on board now. I think you got to get now or you're not, you're going to miss the boat. That's right. Speaking of missing the boat, here are 11 extinct, extinct animals on the list to be brought back to life. Now, for some reason, scientists have decided that they have now come up with a way. I don't know if it's based on like Jurassic park science, um, but they are now working on de-extinction. The company or the organization is called the Long Now Foundation, and they have listed several species that meet the criteria for, quote, coming back to life. Nice. One of them is the Caspian tiger. It's 
a 300 pound tiger that once roamed Turkey and Central Asia, but a uh, species faced demise in the 60s due to poaching and habitat loss. Uh, it's very similar to the Siberian tiger. Also, the auroch, originally found in Europe, Asia, and North Africa, estimated to be seven feet tall. It, it looks kind of like a, it's a, a cattle family. Deer, yeah. Yeah. Seven Bring foot tall steer? That's a lot of meat right there. Yeah, there's a lot of meat, yeah. Damn. The infamous dodo. The dodo. They're going to bring back. Killed off by human greed. Yeah, crazy, right? Yeah. The woolly freaking mammoth. They have a couple of uh, specimens that have been frozen and preserved. So scientists have access to their DNA. Yeah, so they're talking about just basically recreating them like Jurassic Park from the DNA, right? Kind of, yeah. Like I went to the site for the generic, uh, for that continuum of wildlife, uh, whatever the company's called. And they're saying they basically are a genetic rescue company. So if they get the genetic material, they're thinking they could just recreate it like Jurassic Park. I'm like, that's pretty fucking cool. And nothing bad is going to happen, I'm sure. No, we saw the <laughs> Jurassic Park movie. It all ends up pretty good, right? Oh, yeah. It ends up, you know, freaking aces across the board. So they actually have projects they're saying now. The woolly mammoth, passenger pigeon, the horseshoe crab, the health hen, and the black-footed ferret. I thought the horseshoe crab was around. I don't know. The gastric brooding frog. What? Gastric brooding frog? Yeah. There's the baiji, which is some sort of uh, shark or dolphinish looking thing. The moa, which is some sort of Ostrich-looking bird, the Labrador duck, which is a lovely-looking duck. It's almost like a penguin and a duck combined. I'm a duck connoisseur now because there's a lot of ducks around here, so I, I look. Mm. There was a woolly rhinoceros. It looks pretty cool, you know, like a regular rhinoceros, like wearing a coat. That would be awesome if you're skiing. That shit starts chasing you. That sounds amazing. What happened on this? You man, this woolly rhinoceros started chasing. Uh, sign me up. Okay, so say they do this. Everything works perfectly. When do they decide to just start bringing back humans then? Well, you're not bringing it back a specific one. You're just bringing back from the genetics a type of... So humans are around. I mean, unless you bring it, back like a caveman. Isn't that sort of... Wasn't that sort of what they did in that movie Boys to Brazil? Boys from Brazil? Is that what it was called? When they took like Hitler's DNA and they like... It was, right? They, like, re, they had like that same like life events that occurred to Hitler they did to these kids to try to replicate Hitler. Did you ever see that movie? Steve Gutenberg was in it. Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> Police Academy 6, right? Uh, yes. it was like, I think it was like Rutger Hauer played like Dr. Mengele and it was like the 60s or something or the 70s. Okay, so Gregory Peck, Lawrence Olivier, James Mason. Wow, pretty big names. Gregory Peck. Okay, that was it. Yeah. Last one on that list, Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> he was in there? He was in there. Oh, I thought you were joking. Oh my God. He's like one of the main characters. He's uh he's he stumbles upon a secret organization holding clandestine meetings in Paraguay. And the hell is it? Wow, they don't even do cliff notes on Wikipedia. They actually have the whole plot laid out. Look at that. Barry Kohler. Wow. As Steven Gutenberg. Yeah, that was a really weird movie. I don't know why I watched it, but it was like, uh, it was weird. That's all I can really say. It was just interesting. 
So what is it about Hitler or about a fake Hitler? Well, it's about like, because uh, uh, Gregory Peck plays Dr. Joseph Mengele and it's kind of like after the Third Reich, it's the 70s. And they tried to like replicate Hitler. Like he had his DNA and they like got these women and they, you know, had them inseminated with Hitler's DNA and they raised these boys and they tried to have their exact same like the events that happened in Hitler's life, like mother getting cancer and father not being there or dying or whatever happened to his father, like to do the exact same thing to these kids to like raise new Hitlers. <sighs> Crazy. Yeah. Wow. I was watching uh, riding cars with comedians riding cars, getting coffee. Mm-hmm. And it was the one with, uh, well, Jerry Seinfeld, of course, and um, Ricky Gervais. And Ricky Gervais was like, so think about it. Hitler, he gets married the you know the allies are coming into the bunker so he gets married in a in a secret you know in a quick ceremony they go into the bunker they kill themselves they take him outside they burn the bodies he's like isn't that one hell of a honeymoon (laughs) he's like think of that you know people bitching about their honeymoon it could be worse you get delayed an hour in your flight and not nearly as bad as that anybody complains about their honeymoon Better than Hitler's, right? That's true. Hashtag Hitler's honeymoon. Speaking of Hitler's honeymoon, you want to finish this last story up? Now, there's a family of 15. This alone, that that alone is a story. But family 15 is selling their $1.5 million bomb-proof home, really built to intercept Russian ICBMs. Um, now, this is in, they're in Oregon, is it? What the hell is it? I got a lot of pictures. This is freaky. Yeah, it's really weird. Uh, this is North Dakota. Yeah, so they turned a safeguard complex um, in northeast North Dakota into the ideal family home. So it was part of the safeguard missile system, which um, was surrounded by four sprint missile sites and designed as a last dyna- uh de- last line of defense to shoot down Russian ICBMs fired over the North Pole. So the property was for sale through Unique Property World. I'm going to look at that place because it's got a pretty crazy shit too. <laughs> it's, um, there were plans, you know, uh, to do stuff with it, but never got finished. So it was a one-of-a-kind home that basically these people uh, turned it into and it could withstand a nuclear blast. So it's pretty funny how they have the the pictures of the home and there's like an above ground piece and then like everything else is underground. They said the underground 12,000 square foot command center features 30 inch thick walls, 15 foot tall ceilings and a nine foot by nine foot access tunnel, approximately 75 feet long. Damn. Yeah. Um, Again, if I had $1.2 million after I bought them, you know, or if I had like 5 million bucks, I'd first buy the Mickey Mantle card and then I'd buy this place. <laughs> Those are my 5 million bucks right there. Reserve the Mickey Mantle card forever. Like, God, I made such great financial decisions. Yeah. I'm the smartest man alive. People like live in there for a while. Like they just kind of hang out in there. It's kind of crazy. Well, this dude, I mean, I think this guy must have been trying to start a cult. They talked about how they, they met, I guess both of their parents, you know, died of cancer and they met online somehow. And he had five kids and then she had, I think, 
seven or eight. And then they just like wrangled up a few more kids. So he had five, she had seven, and then they had a daughter together. So I guess yeah, five and seven and one. All right, so that's their 13. Um, They just all live together. So I, uh, I, that just, that's a lot of people. There's some pretty crazy pictures of this place. Um, yeah. And if you got some, you know, a million bucks sitting around and you want to pick up a, you know, a bunker with 30 inch walls, this could be the place for you. Dude, I think that's the next big fad. You ain't anybody unless you have a bunker. I wonder if it's listed on like Trulia or Zillow. <laughs> you might have a nice, you know, pimped out car or a nice, you know, place to live. But if you don't have a bunker, you ain't shit. That's what I'm saying. You see like rappers with their bunkers. Like, <laughs> I'm hanging out here in my bunker. Yeah, I just would love, I would love to see this on, um, you know, on like a Zillow or something and just see the way that the realtor would put like a, a nice twist on it. And safe and secure, cozy. Again, if you got about a million, uh, million bucks sitting around and you want a bunker, this could be your, uh, the buying opportunity of a lifetime. Bunker it up. So I guess that about wraps up the podcast for the week. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Check out all of our information, skibonepodcast.com. We're on the socials, twitter.com slash podcast, facebook.com slash podcast, instagram.com slash podcast. We're on Pinterest as the Highfalutins. We're on SoundCloud as highfalutin-skibum. And we will see you guys next week. Stay high, stay falutin. See ya.